Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Trisha Bobita. And I'm Greta Johnson. This week on the show, author Amy Tan tells us where she finds creativity, what it's like to be a procrastinator who has to give a TED Talk, and about the instrument she plays in the band with authors Stephen King and Dave Barry. Hint, it is not a tambourine. Really, really not a tambourine. (laughs) Plus, Greta tells us about her trip to the Rube Goldberg competition. It was a nerd haven. All that on Nerdette. Amy Tan is probably best known for her book, The Joy Luck Club, and more recently, The Bonesetter's Daughter. But last month, her name came up for a very different reason. Indeed, some people at the American Museum of Natural History named a leech after her. Turns out this was a gesture of love for Amy Tan, who (laughs) is friends with a lot of these scientists and goes on expeditions with them to discover new species. And when they finally found the new, brand new, leech that nobody knew existed until this trip... Amy said that they wanted to name it after someone who would, as she put it, actually appreciate it. And she is genuinely thrilled about this. The name of this leech has a lot of consonants in it. So as we started talking with Amy Tan, first things first, how do you say the name of this leech? Catalabdelitane. Catalabdelitane. Wow. I know. It's a very, it's not, doesn't roll off the tongue. Catalabdelitane. Yeah, it's in Queensland, so I don't have my own pet leech to talk to me and to, you know, have my namesake look at me endearingly. I think a leech might look at you hungrily, not endearingly, but that's besides the point. Yeah, hungrily. Um, I have actually never had a leech feed on me, although I tried. When I was at the American Museum of Natural History, they had some leeches that were allowed to be in the U.S., and they, I said I wanted it to feed on me. And maybe this is why they named a leech after me, too, because I wasn't afraid to have a leech on me. But the leech did not like my skin. I don't know why. It might be because I use some kind of sanitation, alcohol, or hand cream. But that leech placed on another person's hand immediately started to feed. So, So I missed my chance, but I can go to Queensland and walk through the rainforest and get a few of my namesakes have them become quite attached to me literally attached attached to me (laughs) amy of all of the creatures on this green earth there are many other things that could have been named after you but you seem pretty pleased with having a tiny segmented blood-sucking worm yeah it's it's not everybody who who likes that it's a different taste as with food i mean i think being named after say butterflies it's completely overrated you know people remember the leech and and, um so i'm i'm quite happy with that you mentioned going on an expedition with some of these field scientists and and that's not the first time you've done that right so this seems like something that's been a recurring passion of yours throughout your life what are some of the places you've gone and and things you've seen it hasn't been throughout my life i used to be afraid of science and afraid of going into the ocean 
And I had a change over the last, I suppose it's 15 years. And one of the things that I do love is being in the ocean, which used to terrify me. I used to think that there was all kinds of horrible creatures down there and, you know, blobs. But the ocean is that wonderful world where you look in there and you see thousands of things. I went to Raja Ampat, which is in Papua New Guinea, Indonesia, with a number of scientists, um, zoologists, and the idea was that I was going to discover a new species for my 60th birthday. Now, obviously, that probably wasn't going to happen, but it was with the idea that I would be at this age with the idea that there is a possibility that I could be doing something that would be absolutely new that no one has ever done or seen before. So how often do you do things like this? Well, it's not like once a week I do have to be at home and do some writing and things like that. But, you know, on whenever the opportunity comes up and I, I don't feel guilty that I'm not at my desk, one of the things that I went looking for are octopuses with a woman who's a marine biologist, and she discovered the walking octopus in that area in Raja Ampat where I was snorkeling. And it is, by the way, octopuses. I mean, I suppose oh, really? you say octopi, it's kind of okay, but it is officially among those people who study octopuses called octopuses. I'm kind of disappointed to hear that. As the Latin nerd, I've always really insisted on octopi. I know, I know. It's not <laughs> like cacti. Well, it's, it, you know, because of the U.S., it makes you think that it follows the same rule as cactus. It's a masculine singular, therefore masculine plural is, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, but it's a different kind of Latin origin. (laughs) So it's octopuses, and I helped her develop octopus scientific equipment so that she could better search for them, and it consisted of a retractable um, dog training tool with a testing out whether plastic, toy, crabs, silver foil, or et cetera, et cetera, work the best. I love these experiments. And it turned out that tinfoil was was the thing that lured them out. And this is for science. You know, I, I don't recommend people do this just, you know, to tease octopuses and get them to come out. So let's talk about you at your desk now. How do you think that love of exploration feeds into your writing? You know, almost everything that I find is really unusual goes into the writing in some form or another. I met a woman whose job was scientific illustration, and I thought that sounded really wonderful. But then what she illustrated were people who'd been damaged in accidents or even killed, decapitated in accidents. And that's what she had to illustrate. And I thought, wow. You know, to be immersed for that long looking at damage. And so that's something that might go into a book, kind of a theme that runs through the book or through the character. So you have to be a scientist in the world to pick up on all those details that can then go back into your work, I I, guess. I think you could, you know, you could be somebody fascinated in ballroom dancing. But what happens is that when you focus on on a subject or a past activity, that you begin to see things, you begin to see patterns, not just within what is interesting to you, say ballroom dancing, but that you see patterns and uh, metaphors, similarities in the rest of the world, in your daily activities, or in people you meet, or in government. You just find these patterns. 
I think everybody can do it, but certainly writers are kind of naturally superimposing their experiences into patterns and then onto a story. You've said that you're uncomfortable with ambiguity and in-between spaces. Do you think that putting yourself in weird situations helps you get better at, at that? You know, it's actually quite the opposite. I love huh. ambiguity. I hate generalizations. I hate the notion of absolute truth, which I don't think actually exists, except in the minds of people who want to impose morality. So, no, I embrace ambiguity and contradictions, and I think that I'm a writer because of that. I think that, you know, once you get rid of the ambiguity in your mind or the possibility that you can't have contradictions existing at the same time, your vision of the world, and certainly as a writer, is very narrow. So, in a story, to have ambiguity, especially when it refers to morality, Um, is a very good thing to have. That is a source of tension or conflict that that characters should have. The thing is, though, don't you think there is a certain anxiety in the unknown? Oh, yeah, certainly. There's anxiety having to do with going into the unknown of something that will kill you. (laughs) (laughs) And you have to, you know, measure your risks and things. Going into an unknown... Unless it's actual physical danger, I think it's good for me to force myself, for example, to experience something or see something, read something. One of the things I did in September, I was on safari, but I'm very much, I was there because of my involvement with Wild Aid, a conservation group. And I met with some people who were part of the area environmental conservation people, talking about what they were able to do to catch poachers or to decrease what was happening in in killing elephants and and rhinos and how this is like a terrorist war that's going on here, that people who are so well-equipped. And then we went to a site where I saw a rhinoceros, a rhino, and her baby killed you know, and and uh, looking not so great. And that was something I had to see. It made me very anxious to go there, and I had, I had to work really hard not to vomit. Yeah. But, you know, if you're, you, you need to feel certain things viscerally to be involved in the world. For me, being involved has to do with emotional depth, too, emotional horror, we can only live a certain length of time, but we can go a depth in our time, and it, it's almost bottomless. Words of wisdom from Amy Tan. Still to come on Nerdette, Amy tells us about what it's like to rock out with Stephen King. And how many steps does it take for a Rube Goldberg machine to open an umbrella? I have the answer. This is Nerdette. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. You're listening to Nerdette. I'm Trisha Bobita. Greta, let's jump right back in to our conversation with Amy Tan. Obviously, she's an author, and now we know she's also a bit of an explorer. But did you know she is also a member of an author rock band called the Rock Bottom Remainders? We'll talk to her about it in just a minute. But first, let's hear about a different sort of stage appearance. So what is a little more terrifying to you, being at the bottom of the ocean with sharks or (laughs) having to be on stage giving a TED Talk? Because they both sound equally scary to me. Oh, definitely the TED Talk. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, they gave me the parameters of, of, you know, 20 minutes, don't go over 20 minutes. Or must say something original. You you know, it was like, you have to be prepared. You have to be exciting and spontaneous. But, you know, and don't read anything. It was like telling you to do one thing but being the other. It was so much like, I don't know, pianists and piano recital (laughs) when I was eight years old. Plus, they gave me the topic, where does creativity hide? And I have this terrible habit where I don't do anything until the very last minute. So I looked at this <laughs> I'm not talk. familiar with that. Yeah, no, I mean, the me. subject, I looked at it two days before and I think, what does it mean? What does this question <laughs> mean? Because I don't think of creativity as hiding. I think of creativity as chaos. You know, it's all oh. around you. It's not hiding. It has to come together like, I don't know, magnetized particles suddenly that just, poof, you know, and there it is. It's not hiding. So the question was wrong, and I was trying to answer an incorrect supposition, at least for me. And you had to wear a silly headset, probably. Uh, probably. Did you get away with it? Yeah, they, they always make you wear stuff yeah. like that, you know. And <laughs> I did this terrible thing. I'd never used PowerPoint. <laughs> and I decided, okay, I will be able to keep my head together in front of this TED audience. It's very intimidating. And I would put on um, slides. And so I started looking at them and I thought, oh, this is fun. I can make this kind of explode into a shower of lights, you know, and changing the screen. Or (laughs) this one is a window and it twirls and goes out. (laughs) Well, every single slide I had did things like that. And when I got up on stage and I started doing it, I realized how ridiculous it was. (laughs) So I, I thought, this is so cutesy. This is terrible. Plus, I had my dog on stage. Yes, good. I wanted to ask you about your dog. The dog on stage was not supposed to be there. Somebody was... Really? (laughs) Oh, it was, you know, all these things that went wrong. The slides, the dog, you know, I look later, the dress was wrong, the color was wrong. The dog was on stage. My little two-pound Yorkie was on stage because somebody was supposed to take my dog out of the room. (laughs) The auditorium, but she couldn't get into the auditorium. They would not let her in. Oh, no. So now I'm, I'm waiting for her, I'm waiting for her, and she's not there. I have my dog in a bag, and if I leave her on the seat, she's going to bark. When she sees me go up there, she's going to bark. So I decided I'm going to just put her up there. You know, people are going to wonder, what is this bag? <laughs> and I said, where does creativity hide? Well, we're always looking for the muse. Where is the muse? I think the muse is in this bag, and I'll get to that later. And then she just slept throughout my Aww. my talk, which is what she does. It's a vented, completely vented bag, and she could see me. 
but she just, my worry is that she would start snoring, and then people would think I had intestinal problems. <laughs> but she, she slept, and then at the end, I said, well, here's the muse, or something silly like that, and unzipped the bag, and she popped out, and then followed me off stage. I thought, oh, this is so cutesy, this is terrible, you know. What could I do? Well, and this is why now at TED, there's a rule that says, please silence your cell phones and Yorkies, and it's your fault. <laughs> yeah, I know the Yorkies. Please <laughs> do not bring them on stage. <laughs> I really anyway. liked it. It got me thinking that when I am invited to do a TED Talk, I will bring my corgi. <laughs> ah, uh, parrots would be, or leeches. Leeches are very <laughs> See, good. See, no They're one very would know quiet. next time. There you exactly. go. Exactly. Very quiet. <laughs> So you have another activity that gets you on stage every once in a while. You're in an author band, which is like one of my favorite yeah. nerdy phrases mm. to say. I um, that author band was supposed to be a one-off, you know, and it was started by a friend, a dear friend, Kath Kamen Goldmark, who took authors around and they always thought, you're so lucky you're in a band. She had the idea that she'd get a bunch of us and we'd play at a big convention just once. Among the people who agreed were Stephen King, Matt Groening, Dave Barry, Ridley Pearson, you know, all these wonderfully funny people. And, and insanely, I agreed to do it only because I, I kept thinking about how fun the costumes would be, <laughs> not thinking that when you're in a band, you actually have to sing or play an <laughs> instrument, you know, and also to sing into a microphone, and there would be thousands of people there. And um, I freaked when I realized that I would I, I called up to Candy. I said I can't do this I can't she said oh do you have a date conflict I said no I can't sing <laughs> um, but what I discovered is this is not so much about talent it's really about <laughs> connecting to the audience it's performance it's different every single time because the audience is different every single time and so no I haven't gotten any better I have ridiculous <laughs> costumes but I have an incredible time with these over the last 23 years with these people who have become very good friends, very close friends. Are you playing an instrument in the band? The only one is the instrument of destruction, the instrument <laughs> of pain. I carry a whip. The tambourine. Um, oh, a whip. No, no, no. I have a whip. My, my signature song is These Boots Are Made For Walking. Oh, that's and I pretty wear, great. Uh, you know, a police cap and boots and leather and all of that and I have a whip and at the end of the song the boys have to turn around and bend over and then I whip them and, <laughs> and no one remembers whether I'm a bad singer they just think I'm great because you know anybody who whips Stephen King's butt is obviously quite good very talented so, yeah as, a very good performer. As they say in the musical Gypsy, you got to have a gimmick. There you go. Yeah, that's all you need. Yeah, that's my gimmick. Well, and we know it's a proper nerdette interview when Trisha has cited a musical. So I'm <laughs> glad that happened. Yeah. Amy Tan, thank you so much for joining us on Nerdette. Thank you. We 
We know you want to see a video of Amy Tan <laughs> performing These Boots Are Made For Walking with her author band, The Rock Bottom Remainders. And you're in luck. We have a link to that at our website, nerdatpodcast.com. Still to come, I take you to a magical place filled with pulleys and magnets and mouse traps and ramps and spinning sticks. The Rube and... Goldberg competition. Yes! This is Nerdette. listening to Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson and Trisha, not to brag or anything, but totally to brag. I recently got to go to a Rube Goldberg machine competition. I am very jealous, but I am hazy on exactly what a Rube Goldberg machine is. Yeah. Have you ever seen them in real life? It's like the game Mousetrap, kind of, sort of, yeah, right? Yeah, except bigger and often, like, a lot more complex. And they don't give you the instructions, you know? So, yeah, the deal is Rube Goldberg is this human being who came up with these machines and you complete a seemingly simple task with a lot more steps than the thing actually involves. There's a national competition for school-age kids. There's one, a lower division for younger people and one for high schoolers. I saw the one for high schoolers. And Trisha, I thought it would be kind of fun. This is the 2016 rule book. Do you want to see a list of some of the tasks that they've had to do in yes, the past? Yes, please. They're, they're pretty good. <laughs> Erase a chalkboard. Zip a zipper. Hammer a nail. Inflate a balloon. And pop it. I like Water that a plant. One. Dispense an appropriate amount of hand sanitizer into a Ooh, hand. Does it really say appropriate? It says appropriate. I didn't realize I like that. that a lot. That's beautiful. Assemble a hamburger. Shred five sheets of paper. Select clean and peel an apple. Turn on a radio. Adhere a stamp to a letter. Put the lid on a ball jar. That one's very relevant to your life. Oh, that is You drink super and eat a lot of food out of jars. It's true. So in any case, the deal is you have to be able to do these things with 21 steps or more. And I thought it would be fun to actually hear from one of the students who made one of these machines with the team. His name is Nathan Sateropoulos. He's a senior at a suburban Chicago high school. All right, so we have a uh, carnival ticket. You pull the ticket, which is connected by string to a nail. The nail gets pulled out, releases a golf ball down a ramp, which goes and hits a, um, like a set of dominoes that are glued together. They fall down and pull a fishing line across the machine knock down a bunch of dominoes which hit a, uh, a stick that's nailed into the wall and spinning it. There's another level below this and it hits uh, a car that's placed on the next level. Hang on, all these things and he's not even done talking. No, no, the he's way. just, Wait, we're that's just, just a few of the, the steps and he's going to keep going because there are more steps. But all of these steps are in pursuit of one goal for this competition, right? What were they trying to do at the one you saw? This year they are trying to open an umbrella. With all those steps. All those steps, yeah. Yeah, Nathan says they probably took about 40. You can't do more than 75. That's so 21 to off. 75 steps. Yep, exactly. And there are a couple other rules, too. No pets is one of them, which I thought was really sorry, interesting. What? Yeah, you can't have pets involved in your Rube Goldberg machine. <laughs> I found it an interesting rule. I thought it was worth bringing up, too. No animal cruelty in the Rube Goldberg machine. Exactly. Good. And, good. you know, the machine has to have a certain, they call it a footprint. It's kind of like a 10 by 10 square. It can't be any bigger than that. So what happened is there were 11 different teams from different high schools, and they all kind of showed up with their pre-assembled things and performed the task of opening an umbrella. So it's mostly pre-built when they get there. They're just yeah. kind of assembling it. So yeah, how long does pieces. it take them to come up with these machines like how does that happen oh yeah these guys have been working on these things forever i actually talked with nathan a little bit more about that 
Is this the first competition you've been in yeah. making these? Yeah, it's the first one we've been at. My science teacher, he, physics, uh, we had to make a small Rube Goldberg machine in class. He liked our machine so much, he's like, hey, do you want to build this machine? And there, I'll be at it a couple times, like, at the late nights and, like, the heartache where I wish he just never asked me if I wanted to build a machine. But we're here now, and it worked out. I call it worked out great in my eyes. It worked out really good. Yeah, how much of your life do you think you've dedicated to this thing? About like 10 hours a week in the beginning, and it like slowly picked up more work and more work towards the end to like close to like 20 hours a week. Like it's been go to school, go to the kid's house, work on Rube Goldberg, and then go home and go to bed. But if I had to guess, total, I don't know, we've been doing it for six months, so I, I, I can't even count them up. There's so many. Are you over it? Would you make one of these again? Yeah, it's like a, I don't know, it's like a love-hate relationship, I guess. It's awesome that, like, we made this and it worked. Yeah, I guess I'd do another one. You seem very emotionally invested in this thing. Yeah, a lot of time went in it. If it went horribly awful, catastrophic wrong, that would have uh, would have been a lot of time I would have felt that was wasted. Have you shed tears? No. <laughs> this dude behind you is nodding his head yes. I mean, I burned myself with a hot glue pretty bad. I mean, I'm a, I might have I might have uh, welled up, but I sh wouldn't call it tears. I wasn't crying. They could be frustration tears. Frustration, yeah. What are you going to do with it now? Like, it's here it is. It's this big, bulky thing. Like, is somebody going to hold on to it? So all the there's a lot of school property on this machine. we got to take that off first and deliver it back to the school. There's a lot of personal property on the machine. That has to go back to who it is. Um, as far as, like, all the wood all the like the cardboard all that stuff we're thinking about giving it a viking funeral and you know burning it somewhere y'all are some good nerds it is one of the nerdiest things i've ever done this sounds like a fantastically nerdy thing i would have loved to have done this in I high school know, yeah i was uh fun. i was in a thing called odyssey of the mind where you had to show Me up and too. build stuff wait we both did that yes we've never have we ever talked about <laughs> I that i think we did once really briefly okay so odyssey of the mind is a thing kind of like this where yeah you have to do engineering tasks and sort of team building tasks together but i've never made a rube goldberg machine i think nerdette needs to make one a nerdette rube goldberg what yeah. would the task be would it be to listen to a podcast or to open a ball jar open a book open a book. <laughs> Let us know what you think. We do need to congratulate Nathan and his team, actually, because they are going on to nationals. They actually won the regional competition. Greta, when you talked to them early in the day, you didn't know yet who was going to win, but I knew you would find the winner because <laughs> you have a good spidey sense for finding the very best nerds in whatever room you're in. So. He just had so many good feelings, <laughs> you know, a nerd's nerd. Congrats to Nathan on moving on to nationals with his team. And thanks to Argonne National Laboratory, who put on the event for letting us stop by and meet all those wonderful nerds, and to the Chicago Children's Museum, who let them descend upon their museum <laughs> for a day to build their Rube Goldberg machines. Rube Goldberg! Goldberg! And if you would like to see a picture of the winning Rube Goldberg machine, you can visit our website, nerdatpodcast.com. The show is produced by us, Trisha Bobita and Greta Johnson, along with Joe Dassault. 
Our interns are Sebrin Mallard and Maya Cole. Our executive producer is Joel Meyer. You can listen to us wherever you're listening to us because, in fact, you already are listening to us. But we would really love it if you took the plunge and subscribed, whether that is on Stitcher or iTunes or SoundCloud, or maybe you follow us on NPR One. And for many gold stars for you, all you have to do is give us some gold stars. You can do that by doing what Anonymous Pi did and giving us five stars on iTunes. Anonymous Pi, you are obviously not an average 16-year-old girl. You are above average. You are the best of the best, we've decided. And we're glad that the show helps make your nerd senses tingle. Tingling nerd senses, like spidey senses. I like it. I like it. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram is where Greta writes teeny tiny book reviews. Yeah, I'm on Goodreads too. Check it out. Nerdette is a production of WBEZ Chicago, where you can find delightful podcasts for nerds of all stripes. To find out more, go to wbez.org slash podcasts. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. Do your homework. Trisha, can I give you a really quick nerd confession before we go? Okay. I have been binge watching The Office so much that the other day when I was watching, I literally thought to myself, oh man, somebody better tell Pam and Jim what Michael's up to. Wait, what? I thought that to myself. I was like, "Uh uh-oh. This is going to be a disaster. Oh, no. We better let Pam and Jim know. I've been watching House of Cards, so I've just been feeling like everyone's probably out to get me. They are. We are. (laughs) Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.